happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer, Mr. Max Two Fans Williams. Max Boss Tweed, Boss Hog, Boss. This is a boss. He's a boss. Not not a, a, a political boss, but you're into politics. You did the research for this episode, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And actually, funny enough, uh, my junior year AP U.S. history class, it was a year long class. We I went to school where we did like each semester we changed that classes. This was the only year long one we did. Uh, but we would have these debates like every couple of months where like you get a sign aside whether or not you agreed with it. You have to argue it. And I had to argue in uh, high school that Boss Tweed was not the only person guilty for Tammany Hall in the Tweed ring. What? No way. And, and we then, won. And then we you won. were voted most likely to head up a, a corrupt political machine. And I think I was, I was thinking I was voted most likely to end up in prison. And you know what? At 32 years old, hey, I still haven't made it there. Potato, potato, my friend. Uh, potato, potato. But no, we are, in fact, talking today about political machines. And, you know, I always been thought that term. You're Ben, by the way, and I'm Noel. Um, I'm Ben Bullen. You're Noel right. Brown. Noel Brown, indeed. Uh, I always thought political machine specifically referred to organizations of that were rotten to the core, that were corrupt. But it was really more of a specific type of political organization, and then it became more associated with this kind of corruption that we're going to talk about today. Is that how you see it as well? Yeah, you're right. It's it's similar. I was thinking about this in preparation for this one. It is similar to the way that in the United States scheme implies a conspiracy, but in the United Kingdom, scheme just means a government policy or plan. Yeah, or even like, you know, what a grand scheme that that is, mate. That's how the Brits talk. (laughs) And uh, today we are talking about something we've mentioned quite often in previous episodes of Ridiculous History, political machinations or machinations, whatever the case may be, Uh, political machines. Tammany Hall is one of the favorites of school teachers and college professors and historians the world round because uh, even even now when we talk about political machines, we talk about voting blocks. We talk about campaigns, suzerains. We talk about the countless people behind the political candidate who make the votes happen. I think it's also a really popular choice for school because it, one, succeeded so absurdly. Like it was just an absolute, like, perfect model for whatever, better or worse, of what this thing is. And then it also just crashed and burned spectacularly. So it has this, the perfect trajectory to not only be a lesson about how a thing works, but also to teach a bit of a moral lesson. Agreed. There's a bit of a fable to it, a bit of a larger than life kind of, um, 
I, I don't know. There's some Shakespearean about Agreed. this, about this rise and fall. Uh, to the earlier question, Britannica has a great article on this. And Britannica says that in U.S. politics, a political machine is any organization for a political party headed by this is key, a small autocratic group. And this small group has enough votes to maintain control of any given community, whether that's a city, a county, or an entire state. Uh, Britannica goes on to point out that as American cities uh, encountered explosive growth in the 1800s, partially due to immigration, partially due to migration from rural areas, city governments found huge problems in the world of honest politics because they were poorly structured. And in that chaos, these de facto organized crime enterprises, in sure. some cases, yeah, they came into the vacuum and they built the stability. They built the voter blocks, the most famous, of course, Tammany Hall, run by William Boss tweet. I don't know why in my mind he's Boss Hog. That's from the Dukes of Hazard, right? The Boss Hog. I've yes. never seen the Dukes of Hazard. I just know it by reputation. It's the one it's, where they they jump over the car hood and mm -hmm. do a slide, kind of. That's yeah, a thing. It's, yeah, it's like the uh, it's like the Samuel Clemens or street name Mark Twain definition of a classic. Everybody loves it. Nobody's seen it. <laughs> that's right. I wanted to I say something. Movie. Well, well, there was there was certainly a movie. Uh, or, or, you know, a remake. I don't know. Was there? It was a, really bad. I, I'm sure it was. Doesn't have Tatum Chan Channing Tatum a minute or did I make that up there was 21 Jump Street too he was in that one that was also anyway but I was going to bring something up really quickly since we're not going to really be able to dwell on this too much but that definition of political machine it's very interesting because it almost makes me think of what unions ended up becoming during the kind of corrupt period of like the Teamsters Union. Like sure. they control a voting block in their membership and they also control like the means of distributing all of the things that make, you know, America what it is in terms of the economy. So that's also an organization that was rife for corruption. And if anyone's seen the movie The Irishman, you know kind of how that story went as well. But Max, you being kind of the, our, our resident union expert, is that something you've thought about? Like those early days of like, you know, the Teamsters Union and how ultimately folks like uh, Jimmy Hoffa almost stepped in and became the, the boss tweed of that era. Cough, cough, the mob's the problem, not the unions. Cough, also, cough. Oh, no, I know, I know. But it was they were working hand in hand in a lot of ways. And it was almost like it wasn't ever not going to go that way. And then it became very key to protect organizations like that from corruption. That requires a lot of, you know, real oversight and effort. Yeah, I mean, it's the way I was thinking when I was writing this entire episode, it was there's a need that the government is not filling. And thus a group steps in to fill said need. And so that's what these political machines were. That's what Tammany Hall was doing because Tammany Hall, the supporters of Tammany Hall now and back in the day would say, hey, we, there's all these Irish immigrants here who, you know, don't have a job, don't have a place to live. They don't have any respect. We're we're setting them up. And you know what? Because that's what we stand for. And that's what the Democratic Party stands for. And that's why they vote as a Democrat. Also, so we don't get too far off, uh, off this. I got to tell you all the cast in this Duke of Hazards movie because it is hilarious. Yeah, give it to you. It's got uh, Burt Reynolds. Of course. Linda Carter. Uh, Willie Nelson, yeah. Jessica Simpson, and starring Johnny Knoxville. Oh, that's finally, right. Finally, yeah. finally. Give the man his flowers. Turns out has has pretty solid acting chops. He does. This also, like acting, that's the thing. They're, these machines are often acting as though they are the best interest on the ground. That Britannica definition does not end at our uh, at what we just said. They also talk about, you know what this reminds me of, though? This reminds me of, well, let me give you the, the second part here. Uh, to your point, Max, the machine, the organization, which is severely hierarchical and autocratic and severely non-democratic, uh, it makes its name, it cuts its teeth by responding to those individual problems that are often not addressed in historically neglected populations and neighborhoods in exchange for loyalty at the polls. For people who might not have voted otherwise, they're saying, we'll do all this for you. Just do this one thing for us, a favor in the future, if you will. It reminds me very much of uh, what you see organized crime doing in Italy or in Japan, where, uh, you know, Cosa Nostra and the 
and the Yakuza do very similar things, often in historically oppressed communities. And, and I certainly wasn't trying to malign unions in any way. I, I just think there's an interesting parallel in that unions also are serving a need that the government does not address. And in doing that, it opens up the opportunity for corruption. And I just think that's where the parallel lies. Like, I'm not saying unions are inherently corrupt. They're not. Sure. But yeah. in, in being this extra governmental force, there's a lot of opportunities to line individuals' pockets and the pockets of groups and to perhaps interface with less legitimate types of organizations. And I think that happens both with these unions, like in, in the situation that we see with Hoffa and the Irishman, and with these political machines and the situation we see with Tammany Hall. Right. And this is a thing I meant to say earlier, but I'm just tossing it in now. The way I think about like, you know, unions and political machines and stuff like this, it's it's a thing. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a thing. It can go either way because they are in a sure. position where they're helping people in need. Where So if they're transparent and their motivations are good, they can do good for those people. But if they're not transparent, they can take advantage of those people. And yeah, and the reason political machine has become such a uh, deleterious term, uh, such a insult in American politics today is because at some point they began centering on keeping themselves on in power rather than helping people. Their goal was to perpetuate their organization. You could look to folks like Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago from uh, 1902, uh, to, he died in 1976, uh, that guy was a political boss and leveraged this political machine power, this organization, to help address the problems of a Chicago encountering unprecedented, amazing growth. There are other cases outside of Chicago, Boston, Philly, New York, Kansas City. Uh, in those situations, there were a lot of abuses of this power, a lot of corruption, smoky backroom stuff. And that's why this term still functions as a pejorative. You know, there, there are these two big issues, at least as Britannica puts it. One who delivers the votes? The people who deliver the votes are often given what are called patronage jobs you know those are that's when you hire the goons yeah and the sink offense and the cronies yeah quid pro quo right you do for me i'll give you this job it's not a meritocracy at that point it's literally uh you know pay to play and you're paying with your vote which means that you're not necessarily qualified for the job that you're getting in return therefore this also has the potential to lead to further kind of breakdown of society because these jobs are populated by people who don't know what the hell they're doing not mm -hmm. not to, to no shade on the people. Everyone wants a job, but you also should, you know, if you're working in a, in a field, perhaps even in like a, a like something like sanitation or even, you know, something like in a municipality, you got to know what you're doing or else those systems are going to fall apart. And the problem becomes exacerbated when we're talking about cities or communities that have strong ethnic or racial divides, especially back in the day in the United States. This patronage system, this hiring of people exclusively from an in-group can just accelerate those hostilities because most of the people who get jobs, uh, most of the people who get powerful jobs overseeing services they're going to be from the same background as the people who run the political machine, which means that ultimately you create a feedback loop where the folks who are supposed to be helped by these organizations become the ones who are first to be victimized. And, you know, the U.S. has done its best. Uh, this is a problem all the world over. Uh, the U.S. has instituted civil service reforms that attempt to limit the number of friendly hires, I guess you could call them, patronage jobs. And they've said, look, let's have direct primaries. Let's let the people vote for candidates instead of letting the parties nominate candidates all the time. Uh, and let's have some sort of oversight, some sort of judicial review to reduce the power of these fiefdoms. And at, in, in their glory days, that's what they were. These were fiefdoms. These were the kind of things that gangster rap talks about when they say, oh, you've got to check with me before you come to my city. Right. That was a real thing with Tammany Hall. 
No question about it. And, and sorry to bring you back to Scorsese again, but I've been on a Scorsese kick lately and uh, recently watched Casino. Um, and Casino, you know, is all about the systems that run the casinos in, in Vegas and how the those Cowboys. all sprang up. A hundred percent. And a lot of those... Um, relationships, whether they originated with the mob or, or what have you, they involve paying off politicians, uh, whether it be monetarily, which which it did, but it also meant in giving jobs to their cronies or, yep. or kids or whatever. And there's a really important scene that's kind of the crux of the like fall from grace in Casino, mild spoiler, but not really, where uh, Ace Rothstein, the character played by Robert De Niro, fires uh, a floor manager because he's incompetent. But that floor manager is the nephew or the son-in-law of a very high-level politician. And then that politician's like, nope, you're not gonna, you're, please, you got to give my boy another chance. He goes, no, he's, he's incompetent. I'm not doing it. So by standing his ground and not yielding to the, the rules of this organization and this arrangement, he essentially initiates his own downfall. And you see that happen throughout the rest of the movie. And, I, and that's just the kind of thing where if you don't play, then you're going to get got. Or you're going to get replaced by somebody who will. And what uh, better introduction could there be uh, for us to dive into by far the most infamous political machine in United States history? Up there with the founding fathers, once upon a time, Tammany Hall. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tammany Hall is way older than a lot of people guessed. And I love that you found this fact here, Max. Tammany Hall was the executive committee of the Democratic Party in New York City, and they exercised political control through the typical blend of charity and patronage that we're talking about. Just like in Casino, this was happening with Tammany Hall. The name comes from an association that predates the American Revolution. It's named after the uh, once upon a time chief of the Delaware people, Taminant. And Taminant, being a member of indigenous Delaware peoples, would have doubtlessly been surprised to learn how his name has just been dragged through the yeah. mud here. I mean, it goes back, uh, like the story starts all the way back in the 1780s. I mean, and Max, you know, it's funny, one of these, it's one of these things I've always just accepted. Like, I assumed Tammany Hall was like a building <laughs> where they did business. <laughs> like, they're hanging out in Tammany Hall on the Lower East Side or whatever. I've never thought to question it. You sort of have uh, filled in a blind spot historically for me that I've held for many years. Oh, uh, you're it's gonna hurt then. It is a building. 
It, it is, is a hall. Damn yeah. it! The, the group's name is Tammany, and the hall, they have a hall the name Tammany Hall. Mm-hmm. Okay, but well, that, but still. But the, whole, the group still. became synonymous with the building, and it was all just, you know, a bunch of white dudes appropriating a name anyways. So, yeah. Max, learn to take a compliment, bro. So <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. They'll patch it up by the end of the show. So, in the seventeen mad. <laughs> in the 1780s, you got the haves and the have-nots. The haves are the property owners the aristocrats in all but name. Uh, They are the ones who run New York City and New York State. They are trying to stop freeholders or people who are not as rich as them from voting. And they want to strengthen something called the Society of the Cincinnati. It's a bunch of uh, veterans from the Continental Army who kind of like monarchies. They're kind of into monarchies. And so William Mooney, this carpenter upholsterer in New York City, he founds a different thing. It's called the Society of St. Tammany or the Columbian Order on May 12, 1789, just a few days after George Washington becomes the president. And he says, what Mooney says, rather, uh, not Washington, uh, Mooney says, we're going to create a national society that's going to be, quote, native in character and democratic in principle and action. And speaking, yeah, speaking of nice. Speaking of appropriation, though, they give their officers Native American titles, and uh, they they call the head of the organization the Grand Sachem, chosen from among his, quote, fellow chiefs. You know, it's funny, Ben, and we may have talked about this on the show. Um, we definitely did off air, but in working with some of our folks from the Next Up initiative, which is an incredible uh, thing to kind of uh, help find underrepresented groups and give them the ability to tell their stories through podcasting, through mentorship, and, you know, uh, pairing them with, like, more seasoned folks and really teaching them the ropes. Max is a big part of it. Ben has, has worked on it. I've I worked on it to a slightly lesser degree, but hope to do more. I was working with um, one of our producers out of L.A. who was working with some folks from an indigenous community on telling that kind of story, which is grossly underrepresented. I mean, I think, what is it, Reservation Dogs is maybe one of the only kind of high-profile, sort of real on-the-ground stories about modern uh, examples of what it's like to live in indigenous communities. But um, she presented us with a, an article with all of these um, very common expressions that are really, really offensive to native communities, to, to uh, sure. indigenous communities. And Circle a lot of the them, wagons. that one was one that I did not think of. I did, yeah. I think I've, I've, that's one I've thrown out, you know, in passing numerous times. Obviously, there are ones that are obvious, like low man on the totem pole and things going like that. Going off the reservation. Or, or going off the reservation, hitting the war path and all of that stuff. But it's because of stuff like this and the appropriation of these types of terms and the sort of like commodification of of the image of these people uh, that that things like that are, in fact, you know, problematic. So I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to soapbox there. I just it was news to me and a lot of it. And I think it's always important while not living life in fear of being canceled or saying the wrong thing. You know, it's good to check yourself before you wreck yourself in terms of these types types of things. And life is a learning experience. No worries, my friend. It's not a soapbox if we all agree, which we do. But another one also, spirit animal. That's, yes. that's one also. I use inner, that all the time! Inner, ah! inner, and the, inner, inner beast. Inner beast. Is and what, the, is the uh, totem pole thing, what, what I find offensive about that, in addition to the other stuff, is that the bottom image of the, the bottom carving on the totem pole is foundationally the most important. So they're even getting that basic part. Now, I don't mean to derail, but like, can I not say spirit animal? I'm, I'm being, I'm, like, is that, is that, that's, that is less offensive than it is maybe just mildly appropriative. But I mean, and maybe it's like being used too flippantly because the actual concept of a spirit animal is historically a very sacred thing. Okay, I've already answered my own question. Not going to say it anymore. Moving on. My approach on this is uh, don't ask me. I'm some white dude. Why don't we ask somebody who, you know, is not from a long history of appropriation? And Max was there the entire time. He is several centuries old. Exactly. <laughs> so the, I fought Aaron Burr. So somebody we're getting to, to it, buddy. Somebody needed to. So the the Tammany organization in these early days, they represent what you could call middle class opponents of the Federalist Party. However, there's an issue because their concept of democracy, appropriation and romanticization aside, it doesn't it doesn't take into account 
less than middle class economic groups, people who also want their lives to not stink. Uh, and this ties into an earlier episode. Also, shout out to our research associate, Mr. Max Williams on Aaron Burr. That's right. At one point uh, in his checkered career, Aaron Burr, and, and please, by the way, go ahead and uh, listen to our two-part episode about this uh, really interesting and problematic fellow. But before experiencing his uh, meteoric fall, can you have a meteoric fall? You can have a meteoric rise. Meteors fall, typically, in the shower. His political downfall um, after, you know, killing Alexander Hamilton in that duel, ending up on the totally wrong side of history. Uh, That's in 1804. He was a member of this organization of Tammany Hall. Um, And it was very instrumental in bringing about political victories for the then Democratic Republican Party. Uh, And Thomas Jefferson actually was a huge booster for them. And Mm -hmm. when he became president in 1801, he he gave them props and he allowed them to really rise in, in, in power. Because that's how the system worked, right? One hand washes the other, a bunch of uh, back-scratching circles going on, just like you're in a warm-up exercise for drama class. It wasn't wasn't until, I think, well, it was pretty early, right? Uh, Just in in around the same time you mentioned, the early 1800s, the news got out. And the average person was saying, wow, these city officials over at Tammany are are pretty corrupt. Something has to be done. Rabble, rabble, rabble. So various people get removed from office. The controller gets removed, right? uh, What about the comptroller? Uh, the comptroller, not a thing yet. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, the superintendent of the almshouse gets removed because they mess with the money. And then, of course, of special interest to our pal, Mr. Max Williams, the inspector of bread is given the boot. Are these all like Robin Hood terms? <laughs> like alms for the poor and <laughs> a crust of bread, me lord? It's very weird. These, these these political terms clearly don't really exist anymore. But an alms house, I wonder, is that some sort, is that like basically like the treasury? Well, you know, like alms for the poor. Got it, got it. So it's technically, its role is to look out for the disenfranchised and disenfranchised. I, I guess it's it's kind of like saying get rid of the person who runs you know the city funded housing that makes sense today like maybe if someone was here in Atlanta Georgia if someone was caught up in a scandal about affordable housing right and they were in charge of section 8 or something I wonder what that would be like <laughs> <laughs> dare we imagine right yeah exactly and so the thing is these guys uh, and they were all dudes uh, when they were proven to be corrupt when they were removed officially from their positions, they were still very much in play and in power in the hierarchy of Tammany. So the next thing that happens around this time, the next thing that happens is that there is a growing Irish population in New York City. And I would would say the quiet part out loud, this reminds me so much of Gangs of New York. Oh, even talking about the 40 thieves and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this, well, the Gangs of New York certainly borrowed some ideas from this system. I think it was somewhat historically accurate, but also took some liberties, if I'm not mistaken. Quite quite a few. I think the the main reason it's reminding me of this is uh, the idea of forcing people to vote of gathering up folks and then uh grouping yes grouping that's that's the one grouping yes uh so the irish immigrants don't like the tammany system and they are ineligible to be members of this organization because they are not quote native born patriots so with absolutely no acknowledgement of uh a pretty big piece of hypocrisy. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants say we're protesting against bigotry, against the bigotry of Tammany Hall. And they break into a meeting on the evening of April 24th, 1817. Eventually, Tammany says, okay, for the greater good of our organization, we're going to naturalize these immigrants. We're going to say, yes, you can be native-born or native patriots, if not native-born. But they're not doing this out of benevolence. They're doing no, this yeah. uh, in, in, in an effort to bolster their numbers and their control, their mechanism of control. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this move turns out to be good for them. Because again, uh, as we said earlier, these political machines ultimately exist to ensure their own growth, right? And, and helping people becomes uh, a secondary priority. So by accepting Irish immigrants and that population, Tammany massively expands its voter block. And then they're, oh, I hate that we keep having to use the word sachems, but that is what they called each other. Uh, another one of their of their chiefs or their their big members, Martin Van Buren, becomes president in 1836. This is still like the organization's this powerful at this point. They're controlling presidents of the United States, but they're still not at their glory days yet. Not yet, but you know that it was heading in that direction. And with like, you know, Martin Van Buren, who became president, like he knew what was going on. These weren't great people <laughs> who ascended into power. It really calls into question, not that we needed anything else to call into question the moral, you know, fiber of like early politicians or hell, politicians throughout history. But I just get, when I read about stuff like this, you just get a sense that almost everybody in power that ascended to these levels was morally bankrupt at some level. I yeah. will say Van Buren was against slavery of course mm-hmm. he didn't air that opinion until after he left politics and he went through on all the horrible native american mm-hmm. removal stuff mm-hmm. that andrew jackson laid down so yeah you, not great he was conveniently timing his uh, abolitionist stance is another way to put it right and let's go to the speaking of rights let's go to the bill of rights institute uh this is where we start to see the origin of the man who became synonymous with Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed. It's after the Civil War. The city of New York is terrible. You thought the 1970s were bad? Oh, no, folks. People are just throwing trash out of their windows. There's horse manure everywhere. You're eternally coughing. If it's not just the air pollution, it's because you have tuberculosis or cholera. This is a great time for both of those diseases. And more than one million people are crowded in this city. The majority of them live in very terrible conditions. Poverty's everywhere. Illiteracy, crime, grifts. Irish and German immigrants make up almost half the population. They don't really have a political voice. And uh, they depend on churches and private charities that are often overwhelmed by just the sheer demand of uh, people who need help. Ben, that illiteracy element is going to come into play in a very interesting way a little bit later. Uh, Wait for it, y'all. Enter William Meg, Meg, Megger, 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 Megger. Bo- let's call him boss, boss tweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah we, we, we know him. We love him. We know, we know him. We love him. We, we know, know him as boss tweet. Yeah. William Megger, boss tweed, the son of a uh, furniture maker. And from a tender young age, Tweed uh, realized that he was good at the wheels and the deals, you know, the ins and the outs, the relationship management that is politics. Um, He had what you would call a high charisma point count if he was a uh, a, a, a role-playing game character. A slight diversion. I I just uh, started Baldur's Gate 3. It's amazing. I heard it's great. People love it. I'm still building my character. I'm overthinking it. Charisma, though, is, is, is a very interesting, like, if you play games like Fallout, I've never played Baldur's Gate, but certain games like Fallout or Skyrim or whatever, you can, you have a certain number of points to spend into your character, and it, people usually don't think necessarily to spend it into charisma, but it gives you so many interesting, like, conversation checks, sure. you know, where yeah. it gives you more options to, like, convince people to do things for you, and that's what politics is in a lot of ways is is the power of the pen the power of the 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 smile and the in the handshake you know to get people to do things for you that will keep you from having to actually get your hands directly dirty and or dare we say bloody now was boss tweed uh a super skilled administrator Eh, he was really he was like um lbj would be later. He was very good at buttonholing people. Big and jumbo. Ve- ve- uh, that well, that's what he called his penis. Yes. Well, uh, he was he was very good at uh, he's very good at uh, intimidating or wheedling or cajoling people. And 
he eventually starts as the uh, let me see. He starts as the alderman for the Seventh Ward in New York City, which means he's joining a group called the, to your earlier reference, the Forty Thieves. Forty Thieves. <laughs> yeah, and that's he, the way I hear it. What I guys from gangs of New York. And he uh, he goes to Congress for a while, and he's not good at it. He, he's not able to make uh, much headway in his political career. So he only does one term in Congress. He comes back and he says, you know what? I like small ponds. It makes me a big fish. And so he uh, he says, this is where the action is, on the ground. And he becomes one of the leading politicians in the Big Apple, while at the same time becoming one of the most corrupt. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where you got to wonder if people like this see themselves as villains. And I think no. the easy answer is no. Yeah. Um, and it also does, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, you, you take your first, there's always that turning point in a movie where there's a figure like this. Is that the, the, the day they took their first bribe? You know what I mean? And then it just becomes easier and easier every step after that. So I do think it's important to like sort of humanize these folks to a degree and not think of him as like this giant gnashing, you know, fat hog of a monster man because he's a human, you know, and, uh, sure. and humans, you know, he grew up in this city and I think probably he, there was a desire to do some good. I don't think you're automatically like from the start, you know, I'm going to get into politics so I can screw everybody over and enrich myself. Um, it starts from usually, I think a place of, of goodness and then sort of devolves as also you realize that these problems are a lot harder to solve than I maybe thought. So hell, since it seems like an uphill battle, why not at least put some ducats in my pocket? Yeah. And, and the argument becomes something like, well, all these other bad forces are corrupt. So therefore, I am not corrupt. I am clever by using their tools of corruption against them. And Play eventually, in the mud with them. You know? Right. Yeah. And eventually, you uh, you take the longer view and you realize that from far enough away, you and your enemies look very much the same. I mean, you're, you're right. One of Tweed's first official acts, uh, once he starts getting the attention of the Tammany organization is to restore order after the New York City draft riots of 1863. The protesters, rioters here are largely from the Irish community and they're saying, hey, why are you drafting poor people? This is the one where uh, if you were a wealthier person, you paid 300 bucks to hire a stand-in <laughs> to fight in the war. And, and I present so the, you as tribute. <laughs> right. And so the the poor folks are saying, no, don't make us your avatars. We're real human beings. Why do some people get uh, this cheat code? Why don't we get it? Well, and the sad thing is, even without the draft, it's not that much different <laughs> than this. This is because the military offers an out for some people from lower income communities and perhaps some people that, you know, have not found their way in life. So it's like even without the draft, it's it's not it's it's similar. It, it, you know, there are it is the lower oftentimes echelon of community that have no option other than to join the military. And I'm not saying that's across the board, but it's just an interesting parallel where you see, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. You could argue on a show like Stuff They Don't Want You to Know that that's at least part of the reason for privatized healthcare. Uh, so so the, uh, the, the big thing Tweed does during these riots, he engineers a deal and he says, look, yeah, you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to be a pauper. Everybody has a few things in common. If you are the head of a household and your family will be left destitute, should you go to war and die, then you should get an exemption from the draft as well. And then he says, you know what, further, since we can't rock the boat too much, you can come to us at Tammany Hall. We will loan you the $300 to pay that substitute. And doing this, just this one act of policy, gets Tweed a huge amount of influence over the working population of New York City. And that, in turn, gets him a lot of power in any policy discussion in the city, including everything from, like, where are we going to build the next skyscraper or whatever? And this is probably some of the first places that 
I heard uh, some of the tactics that would ultimately be really kind of honed uh, by the mob and organized crime. The idea of like, let's get behind and put put our, our investment into these big projects that on the surface are like good for the community, but also offer a lot of ways to shave and, and skim and, and charge for things that never took place, you know, materials that were never actually purchased, you know, forging invoices and things like that. It's a great way to disguise money and to steal taxpayer dollars. Hiring employees that don't exist, getting your VIG on the in and the out the entire way through. Yes. And that depends on hiring your cronies, right? Yeah. That depends on hiring your goons and your followers. Yeah. In the Sopranos, they call those jobs no-show jobs. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what Tweed is doing. Not specifically no-show jobs, but he's putting people in power, his cronies and his goons, who are loyal to his greater aims. He's sending them from the smoky back rooms into the halls of government. These folks collectively become known as the Tweed Ring. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And at this point, they are raking in, uh, very soon, they're raking in millions of dollars from corruption. They're skimming it off the top. Life is good. They're handing people contracts as favors, you know, and saying, hey, look, get me X percentage of this and then do as thou wilt. So he gets favors and bribes. He gets kickbacks. It's everything good government is not supposed to be. Was do what thou wilt uh, maybe the whole of the law? Is that Anton LaVey or is that from something older than that? And he just popularized it in terms of the Church of Satan. I I think it's Crowley. Crowley. That's right. Sorry. Uh, Quick off topic. Have you guys seen the new Fincher movie yet? The Killer? Yes. I think it's excellent. Um, I, I like it a lot, a lot. I've watched it three times, but there's a great part where he says this this uh, sociopathic Patrick Bateman type uh, lone wolf assassin. He says, let do what thou wilt be the whole of the law. Somebody said that. <laughs> I can't remember who. It's, it's that, probably, it's like the darkest comedy Fincher has made. Oh, I think it's wonderful. It reminds me a lot of Drive, which I know isn't a, for everybody, but it has some of those vibes. It's very stylish, and I just think everyone should check it out. Um, did you like it, Ben? I did. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed the clear discrepancy between uh, the killer's internal monologue yes, and yes. his actions. And Unreliable I think that's narrator. Yeah. a lot of the comedy can be found. He's a yeah. screw-up, too. He's not uh, even that. He's, like, he's good, but he's... Yeah. yeah, oh, it's just... I think it's great. No, I mean, when he... Uh, the <laughs> Let us know what you think. Yeah, because, again, not for everybody, but if you, if you go into it realizing it is what would be called a black comedy, then I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Agreed. Yeah, some of the... So, Tammany... And the 
Tweed Ring, uh, this is a new, this is like a renaissance for Tammany Hall. They have never quite, e- even though they possessed influence over presidents, they they had never gone to this level of efficiency in grift and graft. Yeah, and you can't get to this level without those cronies in high places. Mm-hmm. You just can't. It's just not possible. And so not only do they have people installed because they've been around for so long to the point that Max found earlier that I had no idea how long this organization had been around and how it had evolved. You can't do that. You can't get to a place like this without starting on the ground floor. And that's exactly what they did. And now they're at the place where any semblance of we're helping people is just out the window. And they're, yeah, sure, they're doing these projects, building like the Brooklyn Bridge, for example, Um, you know, paving roads, building marble courthouses. A lot of the things that we see in New York City today. So you can't really argue that the, the, the projects themselves weren't iconic and, and quote-unquote good. They were building hospitals. But within those projects were all, like we said, all these opportunities for padding the costs and adding all of these, you know, kind of imaginary expenses that literally just went right into the pockets of Tweed and his pals. Yeah, like think of the county courthouse, which was originally going to be $250,000 to build, still a ton of money, but eventually it ended up being more than $13 million in cost. It was never completed, uh, but the Tweed ring bank accounts were made whole. It's really construction project for those guys' bank accounts. I mean, look, Tweed also is getting a little bit dumb with his money. He's being a little loud about mm-hmm. it. He has a mansion on Fifth Avenue. He has another home in Connecticut. He's throwing all these parties and weddings. He's going real godfather. I I, I think there's a great thing, uh, Max, you point out in the research that the Tweed ring in this time, in 1873, they bought in uh, an estimated 50 to $200 million in, in 1873 money. And I, I think we do have an inflation calculator. But, but that's, in, that's like their profits. That's, yes. that's like in, in the money that was totally skimmed and, grif- and grafted, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I would love to hear a beep and a boop and a bop, bop, boo. Boom. $50 million in 1873 in 2023 money. That's almost $1.3 billion. That's $1,282,454,166. And that's on the low end. Yes, that's on the low end. I mean, what? A, and, and, and I mean, it, it makes sense that we would have a pretty wide range because this stuff's hard to track. That's the point of it, it all. Makes sixty-seven cents, right? Like two hundred million on the upper end. To your point, in eighteen seventy-three, two hundred million dollars in twenty twenty-three. That is drum roll, please, Mister Williams. Five billion one hundred twenty-nine million eight hundred sixteen thousand six hundred sixty-six dollars, and you'll love this part, Noel. Sixty-seven cents. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! What a oh, very very interesting. Um, and, and you know, I'd, I'd like to think that this kind of thing couldn't happen anymore. But oh sure, yeah. that would be absolutely naive and foolish. And and what I was going to say too, is this whole like mansion on fifth Avenue home in Connecticut. That's the template for like corrupt New York money men. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but like having, you'd think you'd have to really be low key and not have a big, you know, property and not, you know, try to overestimate the, uh, square footage of your apartment buildings because you'd want to stay below the radar. But that's not how these folks work. Ostentatiousness is the name of the game. They're like, yeah, come at me. Come at me. See what happens. And that question they asked uh, or that directive they gave was answered. The reason the Tweed Ring specifically does not exist the way it existed back then all goes down to journalism. Yes. Thank your local journalists. The New York Times, uh, the the people working there really put their lives on the line talking about this corruption uh, on the part of people who ran the town. They started running stories about these famous specific 
grafts and grifts. And then if you go to Harper's Weekly, you see the editorial cartoons of the Jeez. legendary Thomas Nast, whom I love, love, love. And he was doing the one of the best things you can do as a cartoonist. He, he said, look, there are journalists who are raking the muck, hitting the streets, reporting the facts, and I'm going to get people who may not care about politics normally. I'm going to get them to laugh and understand how bad this is, uh, uh, an approach that Jon Stewart later used on The Daily Show to great effect. I'm going to draw Boss Tweed as a giant pig monster clutching bags of money, you know, with dollar signs on it, stomping on poor people that are bowing and scraping in the streets. Oh, I get what that means. That looks bad. I wonder what the deal is with this guy. Maybe I should think twice about it. The power of cartoons. We spoke earlier about how a lot of people in this time in New York City couldn't read. So therefore, not only was it just really impactful, these cartoons, it was crucial because those deep dive investigative pieces, while incredibly important, and, and that's where like the meat of the info was, those would not be reaching a lot of folks for that very reason. It's because they couldn't read. So the cartoons is a way of getting everybody involved. Which made Tweed even more concerned. Because, you know, the um, the deep dive written articles are arguably for the learned. And I hate that term, but that's that's what he was looking at. He was saying, my voting blocks are working class. They understand cartoons. I need to look good in this sphere of public conversation. And so he went to the New York Times and went to Nast, Thomas Nast specifically, and tried to bribe them into silence. No one took him up on the deal. No one shook his hand on that. And that's part of how, uh, that's part of why history works out the way it did. Boss Tweed ultimately gets arrested in 1871, October. He's indicted shortly thereafter. Uh, he is tried in 1873. The first trial, get this, has a hung jury. For some reason, not every jury member can agree this guy is guilty despite the evidence. Again, for some reason, not everybody on the jury thinks the evidence uh, is sufficient to convict him of these clearly provable crimes. So he goes to a second trial, and he is found guilty of more than 200 different crimes, and he is sentenced to 12 years in lockup. Speaking of that hung jury, just I mean, maybe it's just obvious, but we're probably talking about jury tampering, intimidation, that's why I was saying it that way. Yes, for yeah. some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's why I'm just like, wonder what those possibilities in this day and age. It would have been a lot easier to do than it would than it would be now. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and that's that's clearly what happened. It was jury tampering. He gets sentenced in the second trial, uh, as we said, twelve years, and he doesn't get out. Uh, he doesn't serve his entire term. He dies in prison, and Max wants you to know that he dies on April 12th, 1878. Max, why do you want people to know that? Well, uh, April 12th is uh, my birthday. It's uh, not a great day, by the way. It's uh, the day the Civil War started. Uh, FDR died on April 12th also. And then, uh, you know, 1878, that's when I came into existence. Max also wants you to know that uh, Boss Tweed died on the toilet. No, he, he did not die on the toilet. Damn it! If somebody dies in the toilet, I will make sure to point it out. But we, not yeah, I think I think we we've got a pretty good sense for that now. For some reason, we can we can sort of figure out when people died on the toilet. Anyway, he is uh, he is uh, in the Ludlow Street Jail at Grand Street on the Lower East Side when he dies. It's the morning of April twelfth. It's around eleven forty a.m. and he starts whispering. He starts whispering, whispering. Come closer, 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 still. He says to his lawyer, William Edelstein, and Willie leans in and he's trying to listen to what Tweed is saying. And Tweed reportedly says, well, Tilda and Fairchild have killed me. He didn't echo like that. I, am, well, I have become worm's meat. <laughs> <laughs> they have murdered me. So who's he talking about when he says Tilden and Fairchild? Charles Fairchild, the New York State Attorney General, Love a good attorney general, a good a good attorney's general um, who had essentially run him up the flagpole, you know, taking him to the mattresses. 
whatever expression you'd like to use. Um, he he believed, at least Boss Tweed had believed in his mind that he had cheated him because he guaranteed him basically to walk free in exchange for a full confession, which seems too good to be true. But from his perspective, it's like quid pro quo. Of course I'm going to do it. Do you know who I am? Right. You seen my Pigman cartoon? Um, It is I, Boss Tweed. Uh, But right. You you know, let's just say we could probably understand how at this point Tweed would have had a bit of an overinflated sense of himself and what he was capable of. Uh, And he maybe believed the outcome would, would swing more in his favor. So he believed that he'd been cheated by Charles Fairchild. Uh, Samuel Jones Tilden was the governor of New York who had essentially made his name and his career on shutting down Tweed and his cronies and his organization. Making promises like, I will see this corrupt man die behind bars, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And going to clean up this city. Well, they were right about Tweed. Tweed did die behind bars, but one man is not an organization entire. So Tammany Hall powers through. And when the boss is out of the picture, boss Tweed dies, they go on sort of a hearts and minds Reevaluation, self inventory. Mm-hmm. A guy named John <laughs> Kelly proceeds or comes after Tweed, succeeds Tweed, and then they bring in these reformers like Samuel Jones Tilden uh, to serve as, again, I hate this term, sachems. But eventually, and we're going to paraphrase some of this for time, eventually we see the corruption rear its ugly profitable head again and then Tammany tries to clean itself up again then it becomes corrupt again and uh, this goes back and forth until they make an enemy of a guy you may know from this show former U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt who says all right we're going to bust Tammany down it's going to be a county organization because they failed to support him in 1932 so even he has some important self-interest in these things. Uh, It declines in power during these various mayoral reforms, and eventually the most powerful political machine in American history, one of, uh, is dissolved. It fades away. Max always sneaks some cute little Easter eggs into these outlines, referring to Roosevelt as the future American king. Strike through, President. Ooh, he got close. Had to write some laws about him. I'm a fan of FDR. I like the stuff he did, but it doesn't change the fact he was president for 13 years. Right. He was, only, like, he was not that old when he died. He was planning to stay for a good bit longer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to be fair, many, many other nations have quarreled with that same thing. The United States, I hope this statement ages well, the United States has successfully practiced the peaceful transfer of power for quite some time, and not many nations can say the same. So let's hope that continues uh, Mm -hmm. to your earlier statement, Noel. (laughs) And at this, I think... You know what? What a wild ride. We we decide we're going to make this a one parter. We have more we'll get to in the future. But we probably I, could I th- save some of this for our uh, future grab baggy type things agreed. that we left uh, left behind episode. But th- there was a, a one little point that I just wanted to bring back. We started with this point. That, that, that sometimes these organizations they start with good intentions, and there were things that Tammany Hall accomplished that were not bad. Like these folks, a lot of these immigrants and, and these folks were disenfranchised and did not have opportunities. And Tammany Hall's original goal, for whatever purpose it ultimately amounted to, was to help keep those people from being, you know, from fully fully falling through the cracks. True. Good point. And maybe that's where we end with. For further reading, check out The Case for Tammany Hall, Being on the Right Side of History, uh, over at NPR News Boston. That's WBUR. Thank you so much, as always, to our ridiculous historians for tuning in. Thanks to our super producer and research associate. I love to shout out our research associates, uh, Mr. Max Williams, for this one. Yeah, excellent. Max with the facts, indeed. Uh, huge shout out to Alex Williams, who composed this theme. Christopher Asiota, Steve's Jeff Goats, here in spirit. Jonathan Strickland, the quizster. Ben, my, my, my guy, my buddy. We should start a political machine. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. All we need is uh, three votes. Uh, Are we going to, do the three of us vote for ourselves? Do the eyes have it? Oh, yeah. Nay. Wait. I. I. C. We'll see you next time, folks.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.